You've been sold the idea that financial independence is all about some number on your account statement, or even worse, that you don't qualify because of where you started out. That's just not true. It's not about some well-kept secret of the wealthy. It's about finding the right information and knowing how to apply it. On the Get Ready for the Future show, we're answering your questions so you can start making real financial change today. The journey to true financial independence begins right here, and it starts with you. Helping our clients achieve and maintain financial independence. This is the Get Ready for the Future show. Welcome aboard for another edition. I'm Scott Inman. John Shrewsbury with us today as we answer your questions on the show. And if you have a question, this is how you get it to us. You can call or text the question to 501-381-5228. Let me give you that number again. 501-381-5228. Leave a voicemail or a text to that number and you can hear your questions answered on the air. You can also send us an email. Send it to show at getreadyforthefuture.com. We've got some good questions today. We're going to dive in in just a minute, John. But a big week of economic news uh, in in back-to-back fashion. You know, this whole concept of the Fed uh, battling inflation. We got numbers on consecutive days. It hasn't happened that often where uh, the, the decision on the next interest rate hike came right behind, 24 hours behind the inflation data. We do know as we record this show uh, on Wednesday, uh, uh, June 14th of 2023, the Fed is meeting. Yesterday, the inflation for May came out, and the data was good. It continues the trend down, and I think we're entering a time economically now. You know, we've talked about for months that one day it's bad news, one day it's good news. And I think we're entering a time now where it seems to be trending more good news than bad. Well, the market has certainly yeah. had a trend upward since October, uh, and all the folks that were predicting recessions, hey, newsflash, you were wrong. Uh, haven't had one, and I don't really see one happening unless the Fed gets really, you know, spirit-driven uh, by by trying to attack inflation and not looking at the effect of a rising interest rate environment on business. And and I think, Scott, it's probably good to just kind of go to school for just a second and have a little quick economic lesson on what's going on here. The Fed doesn't like inflation. Nobody likes inflation. And so their answer to try to tame inflation is to try to raise interest rates. Raising interest rates slows down things in the economy, and uh, there's not as much uh, turnover of money in the economy, and therefore that has an effect on interest rates. I'm sorry, it has an effect on inflation rates, and we've seen that. We saw inflation go from I don't know eight, nine, ten percent, whatever idea. it was, mm-hmm. uh, you know, about a year or so ago. Now it's around four to five percent, mm-hmm. and so the effect, the cause and effect, is very clear there. That if you raise interest rates, you can have an effect on inflation. The problem is, and the balancing act that has to happen here, is that the Fed has to think about how that actually affects you and me and what we do in the economy. Obviously, raising interest rates slows down buying of houses. That has happened in the, in the last few months. It slows down purchases of new cars because instead of zero interest on a new car or 1% interest on a new car, you may be paying 6 or 7% interest on a new car. So all of that has the effect. And, and how, you, how far you turn that dial, you've got to create some sort of a Goldilocks almost effect here of not too much, not too little. Mm-hmm. Get it just right, and you can have that soft landing that they talk about 
And I think that's kind of where we are right now. And the markets have been, you know, responding favorably because they've seen inflation going down and they're anticipating the Fed kind of backing off a little bit on interest rate hikes. And we'll see how that goes over the next few months. You know, you mentioned the market, John, uh, before we get to our first question. It really is interesting. I read today that the S&P 500 index is now within about 10 percent of recouping all of the losses given up during this bear market. It doesn't feel like that for well, people right but it's right. true no it doesn't feel like that because everybody's telling you everything's going to hell in a handcart <laughs> right. that's why yeah uh, and, and if you really look at the empirical data instead of the emotion and that, this is where i get into you need to look at facts mm. over feelings you really should look at at what the data is telling you and not necessarily what the tv is telling you because the tv wants you to be stirred up about something all the time and they'll tell you it's bad it's bad it's really bad it's so bad i can't even tell you how bad it is what the data will tell you is what's really going on and the data has said since october that it's a good time to actually be in equities and mm -hmm. that's proven itself to be the case yeah very interesting uh, because so many people sit on the sidelines during a bear market during turmoil and they say i'm going to wait for things to get better well if you wait for things to get better by the time you know that they are better you've already the horse is out of the barn right you missed and, it yeah and the s p 500 index up 14 percent ish year to date and within 10 percent of reaching the all-time high it was at on january 3rd of 2022 so Always a good time to be invested and stay invested if you maintain the long-term perspective. And all of this we're Absolutely. talking about is very temporal uh, in the grand scheme of your overall plan. And we talk about it all the time, John. It is about your economy, not the economy. And that's where our questioning uh, lines up today. So let's get right to it. Our first question is from Henry in Little Rock. And he writes, I'm currently 53 and can see retirement in the distance. My wife and I both have 401ks through work, and we also have investment accounts that I manage on my own. What should we be currently doing to minimize our taxes in retirement? What are the gotchas, and he puts that in quotation marks, that we should be looking out for? Well, Henry, thanks for your question. This is a very common question uh, phrased differently, but the reality is the same. How am I going to deal with taxes in retirement and this is a a very big question john and i think the first thing i would say is okay he based on the information that henry gives us he does have 401ks both his wife and i we're going to assume that those are pre-tax 401ks many 401 because he probably would have told us if he had a roth 401k which would mean that he's going to have tax-free money in retirement but most likely the 401k contributions and employer matches over the years have gone in on a pre-tax basis. And then he says he has investment accounts, and we don't know what type of investment accounts those are. But let's do a quick education on just the wrapper around the account matters when it comes to how your taxation occurs in retirement. I'm going to swerve just a moment on this, Scott. Uh, one thing I want to focus in on from Henry is he says that he has investment accounts that he manages on his own. Mm. What are the gotchas that I've got to look mm. out for? I think now is the time, Henry, that you begin to seek out wise counsel on a plan for retirement income. Now, you may say, I see retirement in the distance, and you did say that, mm -hmm. and you're 53 years old, and, and I'm not saying that you have to take income from your retirement accounts now, but you need to be preparing for that eventuality. And I think that's where the rubber meets the road in getting someone who is well-skilled at all of the disciplines of retirement income planning 
not just building up money for investments. A lot of people do manage their accounts on their own as they're building up assets. But we would say that, first of all, the first thing you need is wise counsel to help you create a retirement income plan and an overall plan for your financial independence. Now, with that said, let's go back to Scott's question. Let's talk about the the wrapper that's around those accounts. So uh, accounts are, are taxed in a different way depending on the type of account it is. If it is a traditional IRA or a traditional 401k account, you're going to be looking at paying taxes on all of that money as it comes out because it's all went in likely very much pre-tax. And so 100% of the withdrawal from those accounts of uh, pre-tax qualified nature are taxable when you take that money out. Now, if you have a non-qualified account or a after-tax money account that you have put money into after you paid taxes on the principal, the only thing you owe tax on when you sell something from that is a capital gain tax that you would incur on the sale of that asset, or you may owe ordinary income tax on the dividend that that, ta- that, that investment might produce. And so taxation on those accounts are very different. And I think you've got to kind of figure out, first of all, what type of account that you've got and how that is going to be taxed. But let's also talk about the fact that right now would be the time that you get prepared for retirement, Scott, and look for uh, having a significant amount of cash on the sideline when you get ready to pull the trigger. Yeah, when you think about walking into retirement and uh, many of your income streams being taxed, we do look at building a pretty good amount of cash for those early years. There's really a twofold reason for that. One, if it is in your bank account, it has already been taxed, so your net income need can be met dollar for dollar. You don't have to have a gross income and account for those taxes. You actually have all your net income you need right there in your savings account or your checking account in your bank. The other part of that is living off of that in the early years pushes the potential market volatility of the other investments down the road. In other words, if you're going to take have a plan, which we hope you do, to provide yourself with a couple thousand dollars a month out of that out of your nest egg, then if you're taking it out of a cash savings or a CD or a money market fund, there's stability there that you know you can pull that $2,000 out and and not have to sell an investment when it's down uh, as the market has been over the last year and a half. So that those are two big reasons, I think, and big pluses for cash savings because what you're really trying to do, John, is it, you know, you're not going to beat the tax monster here. There, there's right. no way that that's going to happen. You're going to have to have taxation that occurs in retirement. Your Social Security benefit is likely going to be partially, if not majority, taxed. About 85% of it in most cases is going to be taxable. So you're going to have to pay taxes, but the more you can in your pre-retirement years – create an, a tax-free income stream, the better. And the number one vehicle for that, really the only vehicle for that, is a Roth IRA. So yep. the question becomes, especially for Henry, who's 53 and may have a decade before he's really planning to retire, how does he make that happen? Because what we've seen happen, John, is I say this to clients all the time, the Roth IRA is the most underutilized investment vehicle, I think, out there. And much of the reason is, is we may start one when we're younger, but there are income limits uh, that make you ineligible for direct contributions to a Roth IRA at some point. So if you become a pretty high income earner, especially as a family, as a household, you're taken out of that equation. But that is not the only way to get money into Roth IRAs. No, you can convert money that is in a traditional IRA or a traditional 401k to a Roth IRA. Now, the caveat here is you got to have the money on the sideline outside of your retirement accounts to be able to pay the tax on that conversion. 
So you don't want to go willy-nilly and just go crazy and, and convert a big IRA to a Roth because you're going to have a big tax bill when, the, when tax time comes. But what you do want to do is to take a careful look at what we call in our industry filling up the bracket. Mm-hmm. So let's say that, that you're in a uh, 22% tax bracket. That is the top echelon of the, of the tax bracket there as far as income is concerned at certain levels. But let's just say that your top bracket is 22%. And let's say the 22% threshold is here, but you're here as far as income is concerned. You've got some room to fill up that bracket with additional income and still be taxed at the 22% level as opposed to a higher level. And clearly, you want to save as much money as you possibly can in taxes. So filling up the bracket is a tactic that we look at for uh, converting uh, traditional IRA money to Roth IRA and being able to take advantage of future income that is tax-free. Now, the other equation here, Scott, is you've got to kind of look at what your time horizon is for using that particular bucket of money. Because the real benefit of converting a, uh, a traditional IRA to a Roth IRA is not necessarily going ahead and getting the taxes paid. It is the gain on that between now and the time that you retire. All of that gain is tax-free. And that's where the real benefit, I think, to most people are. That's why we encourage people who are changing jobs in their 20s and 30s to make a conversion of traditional IRA money to Roth IRA because you can get a carload of tax-free income from the gain on that over the lifetime of that account. Yeah, that's where I was going next because a lot of people are in their 20s and 30s. If they leave a job they ha- and they weren't at the job for a terribly long time, it's not even a really big sum of money either. So right. maybe it's 5, 10, 15 grand that you've saved in your 401k. You've left your job. You can roll that over and convert it to a Roth IRA, pay the taxes on the $20,000 for that tax year. And really, again, when you say pay the taxes, it gets absorbed in your overall return. So if you were usually going to get a $1,000 refund, you may not get but $200 this yeah, year. Yeah, something so, like that. So you you can, may not actually have to pay anything. You can consult your tax advisor yeah. on, on exactly how that, that calculus works. But I think that that's a, a great thing that you can look at. Now, let's kind of get sober on what's going on as far as taxes are concerned, because there's a lot of what I call tax baiting out there. Mm. There's a lot of fear that is uh, stirred up or ginned up about taxes. You'll hear some people say, well, 50% of your money isn't your money. It belongs to the government. And that sounds very devastating. If you've got a million-dollar IRA or something like that, and you think half a million dollars belongs to the government, well, that's probably true if you took it all out at once. But only a fool does that. Only a fool just goes and says, okay, give me all my money out of my IRA. I want to go ahead and pay the government. You're going to pay uh, an incredible amount of taxes on top of your regular income for that. And so don't fall to the, uh, to the baiting that goes on out there. And that baiting really is to try to get you to come in so they can do something like, I don't know, invest that after-tax money into a life insurance policy and then cause you to take loans from that life insurance policy to create tax-free income for you in retirement. Sounds great. Mm. But you know what? That money was already tax-paid, if you will. It wasn't tax-free, but it was tax-paid when you took it out of the IRA. And the life insurance policy doesn't do any magic with that. It simply is a ruse to get you to buy a life insurance policy so the insurance agent makes a big commission on it. It's a little bit of truth, right? You do create a tax-free retirement, but look at the consequence of creating that. It can't be a tax-free retirement at all costs. So a 
managed plan that uh, that has forward-looking tax planning as part of it is really the way to go here, Henry. And, and as far as the gotchas, it really can come from disingenuous salespeople as much as it can come from the actual reality of how your assets will be taxed. Absolutely right. All right, so if you have questions for the Get Ready for the Future show, the best way to do it is to call or text, either leave a voicemail or send a text to 501-381-5228, answering your questions on the entire show. Well, our next question is from Brad in Maumel, and he asks, can I continue to contribute to my IRA if I have an employer plan, or can I have more than one account? Short answer to this, Brad, is yes, you can. So an IRA and a 401k are separate uh, contribution limit-wise and held separately, so you can contribute to a traditional IRA even if you have an employer plan. The, the real question for you is, is it to your advantage? Because an IRA... And John, you can kind of get in this too, but you know, we talked about the 401k in the question from Henry that it is a pre-tax contribution. In that case, it actually takes place that way, right? You put the money in before it's taxed, so it's never been taxable. In an IRA, it's typically the the reverse, right? It actually comes to you through your paycheck, and taxes are withheld. Mm-hmm. So you're contributing after-tax dollars, but it is considered a tax-deductible uh, account. But there are limits on who is eligible. For that tax deduction. Yeah, you have to watch the limits on this if you are already participating or covered by an employer-sponsored retirement program. Your deductibility actually goes away for married and filing jointly at $136,000. So you don't get any deduction on the IRA contribution if you make married and filing jointly over $136,000. There's a partial uh, uh, deduction between one sixteen and one thirty six. And there's a full deduction if you are below $116,000, even if you participate in an employer-sponsored retirement plan. If you don't participate in an employer-sponsored retirement plan, then there's no deduction above $228,000 of income. So most Arkansans are going to be in a situation where their joint income is probably going to be less than two twenty-eight, dollars And if that's the case, then you can make a fully deductible IRA contribution uh, if you are uh, below 228. So that's clearly something that I think a lot of people would would take advantage of if they understood how that works. Now, let's also uh, talk about and address the issue, Scott, of can you have more than one account? I'm assuming he's asking about IRA accounts. And in truth, it doesn't matter how many actual accounts that you have, but the limits on those contributions are universal across all of the accounts. Yeah. So an individual, uh, an IRA, which all IRAs are, the individual contribution limit is $7,500 annually. And if you, Brad, are over 50 or 50 or over, and that really is defined by if you're turning 50 this year sometimes. So you could actually be 49 in 2023 and your birthday not be until later this year, you are qualified for catch-up contributions of $1,000. Uh, so actually, I should say it's $6,500. If you if you do get the catch-up, it's $7,500. So up to $7,500 if you're 50 or over is the contribution limit for an IRA. Now, so if to John's point, you could have two, you could have three, you could have four actual accounts, but you still can't put more than a cumulative total of $6,500 or $7,500 if you're 50 and over on an annual basis, into the IRA. I will point out, too, though, if you lose that deduct- deduction eligibility, if you make too much for it to be deductible, 
you may not make too much to put it into a Roth IRA. So you could still fully fund a Roth IRA every year. And we just talked about the advantages of that because the Roth IRA eligibility requirements income-wise are higher uh, than that deductibility for the IRA. I know that got really kind of wordy. But one other point to bring up before we move on on this is your spouse can also have that 6500 or $7,500 contribution limit right. on top, and they don't even have to be earning income if you are filing jointly on your tax return. That's exactly right. It's a great opportunity for a non-working spouse to get money into an IRA account, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I use that term very loosely, non-working spouse. I don't know many spouses that don't work at the house. Uh, <laughs> they, they're not employed. The non-employed spouse uh, can make that contribution uh, to that IRA on the basis of their spouse's income. All right, so Brad, I hope that was uh, clear for you. I know sometimes it gets uh, lost in translation on the radio there, so it's a lot of a lot of details. I think the first two questions have borne out that taxes and retirement rules are complex, you they know, are. and they and I think people need help walking through that. If any of this that you've been listening to today resonates or creates some more questions. Uh, that you'd like to have answered, just know a Gen Wealth Financial Advisor is always available to take your phone call, to uh, walk you through an appointment, to begin the process of the Gen Wealth Ready to Retire process, which includes helping you achieve and maintain financial independence through a written retirement income plan. You can step into that process or just ask a question of an advisor by calling toll free 866 653 PLAN. That's 866 653 seven five two six all right let's move on to our next question on today's get ready for the future show it comes to us from kathy she's in bryant and kathy writes i'm 52 and have worked with financial advisors in the past but turns out they only wanted to sell me products and i ended up being in products that didn't really suit me what questions should i ask my next advisor to make sure i don't end up in the same position I think uh, her use of the word suit uh, in there is very uh, apropos here because I think that Kathy is dealing with the issue of suitability and being a fiduciary. Mm. So here's here's kind of where that breaks down. Both of those are, are you know, $5 words, and, and you've got to kind of go, okay, what does that mean? Suitability just means that the, you know, the, the jacket fits you, if you will. Right. Fiduciary means it has to look good on you, too. You know, it, it, it has to actually, you know, work with everything that you've got going on. And so here's the bottom line. Kathy, I want to be sure that you don't get phobic about products because everybody has financial products in their repertoire of their overall financial plan. The money has to be invested in some instrument. So that's a product. But the question becomes, is it the right product and it is, it, is it useful in your context, in your plan? Is there a purpose for that product? We want at GenWealth, we want you to know what you have and why you have it and use the appropriate tool for the appropriate job. You know, I, I've talked to Janet about this before, Scott, but, you know, when we were kids, if we picked up a wrench and tried to use it as a hammer, we probably got chastised by our dads about, you know, "Ah, that's not what that's for. Right. And I think oftentimes when people wander into uh, someone in the financial industry, I'm going to call it, and when they wander into their office, 
they may be wandering into a guy that only has wrenches and they need to have a nail driven. Yeah. So the question that I would say that Kathy needs to ask her next advisor is what licenses do you have as an advisor? Because you can be someone uh, representative in the financial services industries, to John's point, and not be what we would call internally here fully licensed, right? To get all of the licenses that you have, which gives you access to all of the toolbox. All of the tools are in the tool chest. And as far as if someone does answer that question and, and has all of the licenses, then they, quite frankly, have access to all the tools that we have, right? Right. So it's not really about what product or what tool that comes out of the tool chest it is is it being used properly and that goes back to the suitability versus fiduciary uh, suitability just means that they have to check a box uh, an advisor would just have to check a box that the investment is suitable for you based on your risk tolerance and other factors a fiduciary has to act in your best interest and that's what we are here at gen wealth we are fiduciaries we pledge to act in your best interest but to do that you have to have a process in place to discover what that best interest is. Yeah, you've got to have a written plan, and you've got to have an understanding of where it is that you're wanting to go, and will the investment product that you're investing in actually be effective at producing the outcome that you're looking for? Scott, I, I kind of alluded to this earlier. I, I will uh, truly confess that if I have one weakness in terms of retail therapy, it's going buying clothes. I really enjoy going to the men's store and buying clothes. Here's the difference, and here's the analogy. If I go into a men's store and they find me a suit jacket and it fits. Mm -hmm. Based on your size. Based on my size, yeah. that's suitability. Right. Okay, that it, it does fit you. But if the thing is green and orange and has plaid on it, <laughs> then uh, I don't. it doesn't really matter that it fit me. It's ugly. <laughs> I don't need it. I don't like it. I won't wear it. All of those things are, are in play here. And so that is the fiduciary responsibility that an advisor has is to look at that jacket, if you will, in the analogy and go, no, nah, that doesn't do real well with your skin color or whatever the case may be. Or you're probably not, if you don't feel good about that, we're, you're probably not going to use it in the right way. It'll probably just hang in your closet and we, we don't need to do that. Let's go do this. And that's the difference. That is a different experience. When you get hung with something because the sales guy was trying to sell you a jacket, mm -hmm. that is where uh, people like Kathy really kind of get their nose out of joint. And that sounds like what has happened with her over the years. Mm -hmm. And I think that there uh, is clearly uh, a, a mismatch there when you in, encounter that. Let me say one other thing about this, Scott. Uh, brokerage accounts versus advisory accounts. We hear fee-based and commissions are bad and fees are good and all this type of thing. Look, there is a place for both of those. Do not discount brokerage. Don't assume that just because you're paying a commission for something, that that's a bad thing because you could pay a commission for something one time and it'd be the least expensive way for you to actually acquire that product. There are times when it's more advantageous to you to have an advisory fee attached to your product and pay that fee because you don't want a commission every time you trade something. So your advisor should be adept at walking you through each one of those options and using the right tool for the right situation. We use the analogy when discussing with our clients the difference between brokerage and advisory. We use Netflix as an example. It's basically the subscription service of Netflix where you get unlimited viewing, right? right. And that's what advisory services for one fee. In Netflix case, it's a monthly fee. 
you have managed uh, portfolios that may change in and out. You won't have the same thing for a terribly long period of time. In that case, you have eyes on it at all the time. It it pays to have that management and not have to pay a commission every time a trade takes place. On the flip side, brokerage is like what we used to say was a DVD. Now, now I guess it's a digital download, right? You, yeah, it's kind of like pay-per-view. Yeah, pay-per-view. You've paid it, you own it, and it's buy and hold. And so in that case, if you're not going to be interchanging it out, uh, then it's going to make more sense to pay the upfront price to hold it for a long period of time. Absolutely. All right, last question. As we run out of time here on the show, Blake from Little Rock says, Currently, I have an account with an online investment service, and my wife has a 401k. My income is at a point. It is not beneficial for me tax-wise to continue contributing to my IRA. My accountant recommends a simple. I am 1099 and will be for the remainder of my career. Not impressed with my current advisor, what would you recommend doing? Well, I think the first thing I would say about that, Scott, is if you're not impressed by your current advisor, the question is why? Mm-hmm. Uh, is is it that they give you bad advice? Uh, is it perspective on on things? You know, maybe you started with an advisor uh, a couple of years ago, and you look at your accounts now, and they're down, and you think, well, this guy's not doing me any good. Well, think about the environment that you're in. So there could be a lot of reasons why, but I think that question needs to be asked. Mm-hmm. I think the second thing is, is that I'm not sure that a simple, even though that was the recommendation from your accountant, I'm not sure that a simple is the right thing in this particular case because it sounds like that that he is self-employed, has 1099 income, so he's self-employed. And I think maybe a better option, Scott, might be an SEP IRA. Yeah, so 1099, when he tells us that, that means he's not a W-2 employee. That means all of his money's coming to him and he's responsible for paying the taxes at a later date. He's like an independent contractor. Exactly. So that does make him a business owner in the eyes of the IRS, which is good because now you have some opportunities to, as an employer, create a retirement account for yourself and be able to benefit on both sides of that, right, as employer and employee. The simple IRA is built where there is a contribution amount that is a limit, uh, which is, uh, I don't have it written down here, but I believe it's around $13,000 or so. With a catch-up contribution, if you're over 50, that would be 3,500, I think. I believe that's right. And then you, as the employer, can contribute up to 3% of the salary or of the income of the employee. So, that would be a great way to get some money into a retirement account. But the SEP, on the other hand, I think pulls the cap out a little bit more because it's not based on a specific dollar amount. It's based on a percentage of what you earn. Yeah, you've got a higher contribution limit generally on an SEP as opposed to a simple. And here's where the, the rubber really meets the road. If it's only Blake that is in this business, yeah. then I think the SEP is the right answer. If Blake has a number of employees, then a simple might be the right answer because what you're really doing when you establish a simple is you're uh, establishing the uh, kiss and cousin, so to speak, of a 401k plan. It's a scaled down employer, uh, employee driven contribution with a match by the employer. If Blake is self employed, if he's just one guy, then an SCP or maybe even at what is called a solo 401k could be an answer for him. Uh, I think there's a lot there that that really does uh, bear some uh, further discussion, I would say, in this yeah. case. And I think it really is a great point to put a lot, too, because we actually just worked with a gentleman who is uh, self-employed, too. He has moved to uh, a sub-S corp corporation, so he's running all of that through an S-corp, and 
paying himself very little. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that as from the employee side, he doesn't have a whole big salary that he's dealing with. That can severely limit the opportunity to put money into a retirement account. And oh, by the way, it also reduces the amount of Social Security tax you pay. Yeah, let me kind of just talk about this for just a second. For all you guys out there that are independent contractors and you run your own business and you pay yourself a little small salary and you take distributions from the business uh, as a, a lot of your income, you're going to rue the day when you do that if you think about it from the standpoint of how that affects your Social Security. Your Social Security is calculated on your 35 highest earning, I'm sorry, 30, yeah, 35 highest mm-hmm. earning years uh, of, of salary. And if you lowball that salary, then you're lowballing your Social Security benefit when you retire. Now, again, I know that the, the sentiment is, well, it might not be there so I'm just going ahead and get my money now. I don't know that that's really the right thing to do because there is a, a lot to be said about the survivability of Social Security, but that'll have to wait for another show <laughs> and another day. Sure, we're going to question for that at some point. Simples and SEPs, very easy to set up. I would point out, too, the solo 401k comes with a few more hurdles uh, from a reporting standpoint. So it is a little more complicated. I probably wouldn't do that without well, I don't know that you can do that without an advisor's help on that. Um that was the bell. Man, it goes yep, fast. It Doesn't does. it go fast? It does. And it's time for our final thoughts, John. You know, I, I think the common thread in all these questions today, Scott, is there is complexity to money. And, you know, I know everybody is busy these days. Everybody's got, you know, things that they're doing, an agenda that they're doing, and pulling together your financial stuff is a bit of a hassle. But it's really the rest of your financial life that we're talking about. And I think it is worth the time to sit down with an advisor and do an inventory of where you are, uh, assessing where you're at right now and what it's going to take for you to get to where you need to be. In most cases, we're talking about retirement. And we've talked about a lot of detail here, but here's the big question. Will you be in a situation when you are ready to quit work that you will be financially independent? If you can't answer that question in the affirmative, then that tells you very clearly that you need to sit down with a financial advisor and have a conference and have a consultation. Talk about what it's going to take to get you to that spot of financial independence. And financial independence isn't just millions and millions of dollars of wealth. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about being able to sustain your lifestyle when you retire without having to generate money from an employer. I think that's the key. Real quick way to get started is to download the seven steps to financial independence. And it's real easy to do. All you have to do is text the word steps to 501-381-5228 or visit getreadyforthefuture.com forward slash steps or email us. Email to show at getreadyforthefuture.com to get your download seven steps to financial independence. And that's all the time we have for this week's Get Ready for the Future show. Thank you for watching online or listening on radio, listening on podcasts, however you get the show. Get those questions to us, 501-381-5228 to hear it on the air next time. Thank you for listening to the Get Ready for the Future show. If you enjoy hearing from the Gen Wealth team every week, make sure and subscribe to the podcast. 
And you can always find us on social media. Search for GenWealth Financial Advisors on Facebook or on Twitter at GenWealthFA. The GenWealth Financial Team is available to you 24-7 at info at getreadyforthefuture.com or call our offices at 866-653-PLAN. That's 866-653-7526. You should personally consult a financial advisor before making any investment and no strategy can assure success. Securities offered through LPL Financial. Member FINRA SIPC. Investment advice offered through Independent Advisor Alliance. Independent Advisor Alliance and GenWealth Financial Advisors are separate entities from LPL Financial.